Lord, our ears are naturally deaf and our eyes are naturally blind to see the wonder and um, the glory that is in your word. God, my mouth is completely uh, incapable of of speaking your truth in, in any way that is, is helpful or life-giving to us. Um, and so we, we turn our eyes to you now and ask that you would come and, and fill your word, make it um, living and active among us this morning. Would it address us in the myriad of circumstances that we, we come? And Lord, I pray that, that it would just have its intended effect. And so uh, would you bless the words of my math, mouth now, uh, keep me from error, please. Um, let me say only things that are true and uh, not anything in error. Help us, we pray. Send us your spirit now. Amen. Well, all of these texts make a connection in one way or another, um, I believe, between the, the love of God that we hear about in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love and his authority over everything, all creation, uh, birds, mountains, skies, planets, and you and me this morning. But before we see that connection between God's love and authority in Scripture, let's just make some general observations about authority uh, so we can also kind of start on the same page. First, let's ask, what is authority? It's a, it's a word that, that you might hear and, and feel that you know what it means, but if you were asked, asked to give a definition of it, how would you define it? Well, as I looked for definitions, probably the most helpful one that I found is, is this. Authority is a moral right to make judgments and exercise power in a particular domain. Authority is a moral right to do two things, make judgments and exercise power in a particular domain. And so let's just take that definition through a a trivial example. Uh, Consider a a baseball umpire. That umpire has a moral right. Uh, Another way to say that is he has an obligation to make judgments. As the ball comes across the plate, he is obligated to say strike or ball. He also has that obligation to exercise power. He can call a timeout if the batter puts up his hand or the the pitcher isn't ready. And he has that authority in a particular domain, the, the baseball game that he is calling. And so the umpire can use his authority to call a runner out at first base, and the runner must be out, right? Uh, players and coaches, well, they can appeal to the authority of the umpire for a different judgment, but they cannot overrule the authority of that umpire. Uh, they can't say, no, he was safe, and so he's going to just stay on the base. Um, that doesn't fly in a baseball game, right? Now, lastly, that, that umpire's authority is restricted, as our definition says, to a particular domain. And so that means that he can throw a player out of a game even, but he can't throw that player out of his house, right? He can't follow him home and say, hey, you can't stay here. No, his authority is restricted to a particular domain, to that game. So that's one observation. Authority 
is the moral right to make judgments and exercise power in a particular domain. But here's another observation. I don't think this one will surprise any of us, uh, that in general, humans do not like being under authority. Is that a surprise to anybody here this morning? When we look at what our culture says about authority, whether you turn to the headlines or listen to our music or watch our movies, the message on authority that essentially comes out of the culture is that authority is dangerous, if not outright bad, and we as free individuals should strive for a much, uh, for as much freedom from authority as possible. Our, our dislike of authority even impacts how we relate to one another. I, I read um, one author just making this observation, kind of a speaking tongue-in-cheek when he said, I will gladly hang out with you so long as you don't tell me who I have to be or what I have to do. And isn't that the tenor of our relationships when, when, when an authoritative uh, word needs to be said to a friend? Even, I, I find this even uh, correcting someone else's child. It's uncomfortable to say, no, let's not do that or let's play in this nicer way just because that cuts against the grain of our culture. We think it's not loving to tell someone who they have to be or what they have to do. We want to do what we want. We want to be who we want. And if someone makes judgments or exercises power over areas of my life, well, it gets in the way of that precious self-rule, doesn't it? And so we as humans don't like authority. Now, this becomes really problematic when we encounter a God who possesses all authority over everything, everywhere, at all times. Uh, There is not a moment in which God is not authoritatively in control. And, and as we come to know this, as, as we come to learn this, well, it's easy for us then to conceive as, of God as some sort of cosmic cop. Uh, he, he's just out there to kind of boss us around, give us violations and citations when we do something wrong. Don't do this. Do, do this other thing. And I think we as people then so often fear, uh, even if we don't use these words to express it, that submitting to this God who is in authority will rob us of our freedom. It might squelch our individuality or hinder our joy or happiness or maybe even be oppressive. If you listen to the message out there in the world, that is one of the reasons that people have against all religion because they say, well, any religion puts up some sort of higher authority and that's oppressive to humanity. It's not loving But the Bible does not only command us to submit to God's authority, the Bible woos us to submit to God's authority. It it shows us the splendor and the goodness of submitting to so great a God. Did Did you catch that in the lyrics of the song that we sung already this morning? It said, cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see. You might think, oh, okay, where are we going? Your majestic love. Okay, well, that makes sense. And your authority. Those things go together in your mind? God, give us faith 
Give us sight to see the wonder of two things, your love and your authority. And so what I want to do as we look through the Bible, we're actually going to go cover to cover uh, in the Bible this morning. What I want to do is I want to see how does God woo us? How does, how does the Bible compel us that, that submitting to this God is a great thing? That we should be excited at submitting to him. And so I just want to spend the rest of our time together examining God's loving authority in creation. That's where we're going to go first. And then examining God's loving, creation, loving authority in redemption. That's where we'll go second. And then we'll conclude with just implications for what that means for us as Christ followers. And so let's look first at God's authority in creation. Now, the more you read the Bible, I think the more you'll find that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 sets the stage for everything. There is a reason why the Bible starts here. And it sets the stage uh, for a conversation about authority. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where it all begins. As the curtain of history opens, the only thing on the stage, well, it's not individuals, it's not authority structures, it's not governments, it's just God, that's it. He's the only one on the stage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And day by day, God creates everything that is. He exercises his authority by speaking things that do not exist into existence. And then he orders them so that everything hangs in a perfect balance. He separates the day from the night. He separates the heavens from the earth, the seas from dry land. He makes various kinds of vegetation and just a multitude of animals. He makes the sea swimmers distinct from the ground crawlers, which are distinct from the sky flyers. He hangs the sun and stars and moon into space and appoints different times for them to shine. And we know that this is God's authority at work because he does it by his voice. And so when I use my voice to issue a command to my child and they decide not to obey, how do I take that? My authority has been challenged, right? You're not listening to my word. Well, here God calls, let the heavens be separated from the earth. And they are. It obeys. That's his authoritative command. This is his authority going forth. He's using his authority to set each piece of creation in perfect order. And that includes boundaries, right? Everything's just not free to be everywhere. We'd end up with a planet of marsh instead of coastlands and oceans. No, there are boundaries. The fish are constrained to the sea, beasts to the ground, birds to the air, the sun to the day, the moon to the night. But what we see is that all of these boundaries exist for the good of each created thing and the creation as a whole. That was the last verse that we read from Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made. Everything. Not just this one good thing over here. He saw it all. And behold, it was very good. 
That's the concluding line of the Bible's opening narrative. God creates and orders everything authoritatively, and it is not just okay, not even just good, it's very good. Now, just as as, as Shakespeare had authority over the plot of Romeo and Juliet, here God is authoring the world to his design, right? We we can even hear the relationship between the word author and authority in our English language. They, They share the same Latin root. As God authors creation, we just see a world of lavish provision, diversity, harmony, The Bible uh, does not paint creation as the result of of cosmic power struggles like the Greek origin stories, which might explain why there's just so much war in Greek mythology. The creation is not the result of trial and error like some ancient Native American mythologies. It's not the result of some twisted divine family relationship like you would find if you read ancient Egyptian creation stories. If you would have been there as Genesis 1 happened, you would have described it as paradise. It was a world filled with flourishing, abundance, order, joy. Everything was in place. And so we see a God of love creating a world of love by the power of his voice, the authority of his voice. Just like a a baseball umpire uses his mouth to call a batter out, so God uses his mouth over and over to express his authority. Let there be light. Let the land be separated from the sea. Let there be creatures. Let there be swarming things. Now, like many authors, God saves some surprises for the end, doesn't he? The, The pinnacle of God's creative act comes in verses 26 through 28 of Genesis chapter 1. Here he, he creates not just a plant and not just a animal, but he creates a representative to rule with his authority in his place over creation. Did, see if you can catch that as, as I read verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, as God creates humanity, do you see the transfer of authority that happens? Up until verse 26, who has had dominion over the earth? God did. But when God creates humanity in his image as his representative, the author shares his authority. God now gives humanity dominion And we can reason that, well, the humans should use their authority just the way God used his for the flourishing of creation. Men and women are to be authorities that display God's goodness in God's world. This is as if God is 
handing Adam and Eve the pen, so to speak, to invite them to continue writing creation's good story. That's what's happening here. He's sharing his authority. And so as we consider the creation account as, as this kind of foundation of how we understand God's authority, I would just hold up two things that we've mentioned. First, God's authority was not oppressive. It created something very good. It created paradise. And secondly, God then shared his authority with humanity. He's saying, Adam and Eve, now you do it too. If you are a human, you were created to reflect God. You were created to produce goodness, abundance, and flourishing in the earth with God-given authority. That's why humanity exists, according to Genesis chapter 1. It's a marvelous calling, isn't it? The God we see in creation is a far cry from some authoritarian cosmic cop. His authority is not a restrictive force upon his creatures. It's what leads to their flourishing. God uses his authority to author this abundant provision for all that he has made. And we exist not so just so he has someone to boss around or tell what to do. We exist so that he can share his rule. God's design for Adam and Eve was so much grander than anything they could have imagined. And that continues today. We submit to him not as some form of religious oppression, but to discover who we were truly meant to be. That's the authority we see on display at creation. Let's move on to what's the authority that we see in redemption. Because we know that uh, creation is, is no longer that paradise, right? Cre- the creation account was not the end of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, a serpent enters this garden, this paradise. And for the first time, we see God's authority questioned. God has given Adam and Eve one prohibition. He has told them, do not eat from this one tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent questions God's authority on this one very point. The serpent first questions God's words. If you would read Genesis chapter 3, you would hear him say, did God actually say that? Did he actually say, you hear the questioning tone of God's authority? And then the serpent discredits God's truthfulness. And he says, you will not surely die, which is what God, in fact, told them. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will actually be like God. So do you you hear the serpent's schemes? He's questioning God's authority by offering Adam and Eve a different story, a different narrative, right? He's saying, look, God isn't as good as you think he is. God is actually keeping something good from you. And the implication of of the serpent's words is that Adam and Eve should cast off God's authority, that they should think for themselves. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do, right? They submit, they bring themselves under the authority or word of the serpent instead of staying under the authority and word of God. And this is nothing short of mutiny. 
This is like four-star generals. That's who Adam and Eve are. They are God's authority on earth. They are four-star generals on the face of planet earth listening to the voice of the enemy instead of obeying the admiral. This is mutiny. It is a horribly brilliant plot by the serpent to have God's representatives cast off his authority. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, humanity's authority has been tarnished. We don't use our authority to rule under God and help others flourish. In general, we use it to secure the objects of our own desires, do we not? And if we look across the headlines and across human history, we are more prone to abuse our authority than to share it. We're so infatuated with becoming self-determining individuals that we bow to the authority of self instead of submitting to the loving God who made us and shared his authority with us. And so the question as you leave Genesis chapter 3 and, and flow into the rest of the Old Testament is, well, what will God do? How will he respond to the mutiny? Will he conquer these rebellious humans? Will he show up and tell them who's boss? And the rest of the Old Testament follows the thread of that story. God chooses a people through Abraham. Down through the ages, he promises a coming Messiah. And most people thought that this Messiah would show up and authoritatively conquer the ungodly and sweep them away in his judgment. That's what they expected. How else would you respond to mutiny? Well, then Jesus appears on the scene. And he responds differently. In fact, as you read through the Gospels or, or just type into your, your computer the English word authority, you'll find that Jesus' authority is just a constant debate throughout all four Gospel accounts. Everybody's wondering, why does he have this authority? Where'd this authority come from? They challenge his authority. I mean, we, we heard it in even the story of the paralytic that Don read for us this morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Let me refresh our memories by reading it. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, a, a paralytic, paralyzed man, right, can't move, which is why he's on the bed. He's not being lazy. He's just enabled. Can't move. What's Jesus going to do with a paralytic? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. 
This story is all about Jesus' authority. What did Jesus, God's Messiah, come to planet Earth with authority to do? Well, at least three things, right? Jesus heals authoritatively. And just at, as at creation, God spoke and things just happened. So Jesus speaks and things happen. Rise and walk. And he rises and walks. Paralyzed man. Second, Jesus teaches authoritatively. Just two chapters before this, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew comments that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, quote, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And we see the same thing in the account of the paralytic, don't we? The healing is authoritative instruction. It's meant to teach us something. He healed the man to make a point. Well, what was Jesus teaching? That's the third thing he does authoritatively. Jesus forgives sins authoritatively. Jesus' goal with the paralytic is not just that a lame man would walk, as good as that is. It's for a son of Adam to be forgiven. That's what Jesus wanted the paralytic and the watching crowds to come to know. That's the point of the lesson, right? But that you may know, here, here's the, he's saying, here's the lesson, that you may know that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Put together the, the, the picture of authority that we see in redemption with what we saw at creation. At creation, God uses his authority to make a perfectly ordered and flourishing paradise and then share that very authority with the humans that he created. And now in redemption, God uses his authority to pursue humanity in their rebellion, to proclaim to them forgiveness of of their sins, the unwinding of all that they've done wrong. I mean, creation has come crashing down because of Adam and Eve's mutiny. It is no small thing for Jesus to show up and say, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's huge. He's putting creation back. He's saying, all of your mutiny is covered. That authority should be questioned. Who, who are you that can do such big things? He says, I do have that authority. Jesus being the son of God, he could claim authority over anything. And we see that happen all throughout the New Testament. It's not just a paralytic that walks. He raises the dead to life. He casts demons out of oppressed people. He can do everything. But, But what does he choose to do most? What does he delight most in to use his authority for? Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus isn't just being hopeful or positive with the paralytic. He's being authoritative. The the, the authority that, that made a lame man's legs well now proclaims forgiveness to all who come to him. 
Here, Jesus is displaying authority over all domains. He's he's healing a paralyzed man so that we would take him seriously when he claims authority over forgiveness of sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, do do you view your forgiveness that way? With that much gravity? Have you heard authoritatively the voice that says, take heart, my son, take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. You see, we need not be anxious about the state of our souls. We need not cross our fingers and say, well, I hope I can be forgiven. I hope that, that, that maybe I, I can work up enough good works to, to cover over the bad, or, or uh, I hope I don't sin in that one way again. I hope my forgiveness isn't ruined. Jesus came so that sinners could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their sins are forgiven. Just as sure as this paralyzed man knew that his paralysis was gone. Have you experienced that kind of forgiveness from the mouth of Jesus? Because not everybody does. I mean, you saw that in in the account of the paralytic, right? Verse 2 says that when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's it's faith that comes to Jesus and sees and expresses our need for him. Like a paralyzed man needing help to walk. That's what compels Jesus' redemptive authority into action. Your sins are forgiven. And so if you're here... I beg you, don't assume that authority is at work in your life. Come to Jesus and hear it for yourselves. Be convinced of it. Your sins are forgiven. They're done, gone. Now, if you have come to Jesus in faith in that way, there are just a ton of implications for us uh, for this afternoon for tomorrow morning, for heading into work, for time with your family. Let me highlight just two of the the implications. First, when we see God's authority over us in his Bible, in the Bible, uh, namely through commands, when when you come into contact with a command in Scripture, it comes as a command from the author of life, not a cosmic cop. The commands in Scripture are from a God who knows what flourishing and abundant life look like. The the phrase, give me life, comes in the Bible nine times. All nine of them are in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a, a, a psalm of worship about the word and commands of God. Let me read you a few. Psalm 119.40, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Or verse 88, In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. 
Or verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. And so what we find, brothers and sisters, is God doesn't command us because he wants to boss us around. His commands are the gateway to life as it was meant to be lived. I mean, Moses is the greatest lawgiver in the Bible. In the Old Testament, I should say. And he knew this lesson very well. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. He's just given them the entire law. He says, And now what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's not just because we need some rules around here, right? No, it's for your good. This is why every command exists in Scripture. And when we believe this idea that God is not good, or that his commands are just keeping good things from us, well, we are listening to a lie straight from Satan's mouth. It's as old as Eden. And so, do not be swayed, brothers and sisters. God uses his authority to command us for our good, to give us the gateway into abundant life and flourishing as his people. And so, one of the implications of everything we're seeing here is, well, get to know the commands of God. Delight in them, because in them you will find life. Here's the second implication when we consider how God's love and God's authority go together. And this is so huge. We're, we're just scratching the surface. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ through faith, here, here's the implication of God's authority. You, there's a big blank here, put your name in it. You are a vital part of God's plan for the world. Your day today is a vital part of God's plan for the world today. Your day tomorrow is a vital part of God's plan for the world tomorrow. There is a rich parallel between God's authority in creation and Christ's authority in redemption. In creation, God made the earth flourish and then shared his authority with Adam and Eve that they might continue that project. In redemption, Jesus accomplishes and displays an authority to forgive sin and then he shares that authority with his church and asks them to continue the project. If you are a Christian you have, and, and I, don't, I don't think this is an oversimplification. I'm going to read a few scriptures. You, you tell me if you think this is an oversimplification or off. If you are a Christian, you have Jesus' authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins by faith. Why do I say that? Well, after he rose from the dead, Jesus gave his disciples 
one central command. It's called the Great Commission for a reason. This is our prime directive as his people. And he says, all authority. It's not random. It's not random for him to start there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says the risen Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Do you see the link? All authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go, church, and make disciples. That's a transfer of authority. Or at least that's how the apostles seem to view it. Because Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, You, church, He's not talking to pastors here, not talking to apostles. He's talking to a church. You, church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Now, now all of those things are, are, are groups of people with authority, right? Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Why are you those things? Why do you have that authority? Peter continues, that you may, I would insert the word, authoritatively proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You have that authority. Paul said the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he calls Christians ambassadors. And think about that for a moment. What's an ambassador? An ambassador lives in a foreign land with authority from their home country, right? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Now now listen to this. In in, in the context of of this discussion on authority, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How are people going to get saved? How are they going to know the forgiveness of their sins? How are they going to hear those words, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven? Jesus is in heaven. He's not coming back until the end. You know who he sends? You. That you may make God's appeal and implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Isn't that remarkable? And I think about that, who would use me? I mean, most days I wake up and I just want a hot cup of coffee. I want my work day to go well. That's so piddly compared to seeing sins forgiven. One more text, because I really want to blow the lid off of this thing. <laughs> Revelation 3, chapter, uh, verse 21. This is what Sherry read. I, I was a Christian for years before I heard this verse, and, and I heard it in a sermon, and I said, no way. That's not in the Bible. There's just no way. <laughs> this is the words of Jesus given to John. <laughs> As John's exiled on an island of Patmos... What authority can he have? 
Well, evidently a lot. To the one who conquers, mean, meaning who, who stays true to that uh, expression of faith, who, who continues repenting, clinging to Christ, who, who uh, lives under his authority, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has all authority under heaven and earth says that to you. And so the biblical picture of God's authority climaxes with Jesus ascending into heaven, but leaving a church that wields authority on earth to proclaim in his name, representing him with his authority, the forgiveness of sins for any sinner who places their faith in this Savior. If you are a Christian, you are part of God's embassy. You have God's authority to make God's appeal, to implore sinners to be reconciled to God in Christ. You, every one of you, are a living extension of Jesus' authority to forgive sins in this age, to rule the cosmos in the age to come. That's how Jesus intends to bring flourishing to his creation. Brothers and sisters, (laughs) this isn't made up. It's not some fairy tale. If you are a Christian, this is God's plan for your life. It's God's plan for his church. It's God's plan for his world. And all of this, of course, requires submitting to him. I mean, an embassy's power comes from submitting to the one that they represent, right? But do you, do you hear scripture wooing you? God has such a grand, majestic purpose for your life. Doesn't it make you want to submit to his authority? I hope it does. Could we we pray to that end and then we will sing to this God? I'll pray and then I'll invite you all to pray any prayers of confession or uh, intercession or, or requests. Let's pray to him now. Lord, thank you that you indeed possess all authority in heaven and on earth at all times over everyone. We have seen from your word, I trust, that there is no one better to have all authority than you. Your authority or the fact that you are in authority is better news than me being in authority. It's better news than anyone here being in authority. You have greater designs, greater purposes than I can imagine. And Lord, I I pray that this morning as we are confronted by your word, we would not listen to our fallen nature that pulls away from your authority, that thinks it is restrictive or oppressive, but that we would embrace your authority as the gateway to life, the gateway to flourishing, because you designed us, 
And you know what's best for us. And you have given yourself so that we can know you through faith and have our sins forgiven. Thank you, Lord.